Welcome to the Hiring Chronicles. Whether you're watching or listening, we're thrilled you're here with Amy and myself. We're an independent podcast, no ties to smart recruiters or anyone else. So there's no corporate jargon, just real talk. And despite the rumours, we're not perfect. So please ignore our good looks and charm and take our advice at your own risk. And let's dive in. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hiring Chronicles. I'm back. It's me, David Owen, joined with... Me, Amy Oxley. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So today on this chapter, I feel a little bit like an imposter. Amy and I were chatting before. We're definitely overwhelmed by who's on the show. So if I say this lady is featured in Forbes, she's done a TED Talk, she's a CEO and founder of an organisation... And she studied studied at Oxford University. That's probably selling her short. I think there's there's more <laughs> yeah. to say. <laughs> like she's a hacker. She studies the brain and neuroscience. So um, it's going to be really interesting to find out how Riham is related to recruitment. But Riham, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks Welcome. for having me. <laughs> thanks so much. I'm excited. That's a good intro there. I know. I might take that in the future. Yeah. <laughs> Just employ me as your intro That's person. what I'm going to do. Yeah, 100% I'm going to do that. <laughs> Definitely selling yourself short, even even with that intro though. Oh, appreciate it. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this chat today. <laughs> so so give us a bit more bit more of the details behind who you are then, Riam. Give us the, the whistle-stop tour. Whistle-stop tour. Okay, where do I begin? So I um, was born in a place called Sudan, uh, moved to the UK when I was about a year old, and I've literally lived in London pretty much all my life, Paddington specifically. So I'm a proper Londoner, I'd say. You could probably tell from this accent. Um, <laughs> I moved out just a bit, right? <laughs> um, I literally went into to kind of school from there and really had the fascination of, of sciences but my family have always been in science space for, for you know my mum's an, an accountant my dad's an engineer and so science has always been something that I've grown up to to kind of been used to and that's when I, I guess started developing into the world of actually what do I want to do when I go to uni I thought okay let's let's go into medical engineering so I went into imperial to do that and then I uh, went to Oxford to do neuroscience huge fascination about the brain and how it works and how it doesn't work sometimes and it doesn't do what you want it to do sometimes and one thing I said I'd never be was an entrepreneur that's the one thing <laughs> you failed why, why you am failed I why am I here why? I failed that didn't I <laughs> why did you say you never wanted to be an entrepreneur why yeah. where, where did that come from yeah no I guess just the stereotypes of what you see in the media around CEOs and leaders and I just never thought I had a business acumen at all, yeah. right? That, that whole concept of leaders born or made, I always thought they were, they were born to be kind of this, this kind of entrepreneurial spirits. And it was just one thing I thought, I'm going to leave that aside. I'm going to continue my academic path. I was going down you know, the route of lecturer, you know, becoming a professor. That was like my trajectory. And that's when I met my co-founder, Vivek. And we started going on this path. And I realized, actually... Entrepreneurship is nothing like the social network movie. For, for it's nothing like that at all. It's nothing like the Dragon's Den when I'm, you're pitching. And I think all those stereotypes, right, uh, started to kind of waste away. And I realized, you know what? I don't need to be defined by what people think CEOs are like. And that's where I thought, you know what? Being a, a CEO, being running your own business is such an honor. And 
in the world of academia, you tend to specialise and you specialise and you specialise until you know a fraction of the world's knowledge. But in fact, when you're running a company, you've got so much breadth, right? Mm. You need to, a jack of all trades, master of none is what I call myself. And I wouldn't have changed it for a world. But it was one thing I said I'd never do. But there you go. Well, I'm glad you have, because oh, now so you're on I. the show. I know, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you'd never have called me and that bio wouldn't have made sense. <laughs> So then you become an entrepreneur yes. and you start Mavite. Yep, absolutely. So first of all, Mavite is what, where did you get the name? What is the core of the company? Yeah, no, good question. So Mavite, um, it's got an interesting definition. Um, Vitae means, or curriculum Vitae, so your CV, but we also, which is kind of your career, right? But in Latin, Vitae also means life. So your career your life, right? So that's the kind of nice. symbol yeah. behind the name. But sometimes I just think like, we've over-engineered that. Um, but it's a it's a way to just kind of show that, in fact, you do spend most of your time, you know, in a career, right? So you, that's that's your waking day spent working most of the time. So your career is actually sometimes can be your life. And the concept around me Vitae is around how do you use technology and science to mitigate biases and when I say biases I mean cognitive unconscious algorithmic biases which we all have and it's part of just human nature it's a way that our brain allows us to process information and actually make decisions very very quickly and so these biases have lots of benefits but they have drawbacks as well right Uh, the benefits means that we can make decisions a lot faster right it means that we don't have to go through the same pathways our brains have to constantly to make the same decisions over and over again right it means that we know what we like what we don't like but it also has the disadvantages of we've got preconceptions it can create stereotypes Um, and in the world of recruitment it can reduce diversity and inclusion in the workforce and that's our so i've got a question immediately for you go for it (laughs) um i think in the past you've said that some of the decisions that you make because I think you, you list 95% of mm. all decisions have unconscious bias related to them. Yes. And some of those decisions you make in like milliseconds. Very you false. can tell whether you trust someone based on yep. their eyebrows and their based eyes, on cheek, cheekbones. Is that lots right? Lots of things. Lots of things. Absolutely. And the moment you see someone, you made a judgment pretty much, right? The way they dress, how they look, right? Um, their style, all of those things, you make decisions out of that. And those are kind of, because what you want to do, what you do in your kind of neurological mind is you start to put people into boxes because it just means that you can process information quicker. Um, and that's where you end up with having stereotypes, right? Um, and those decisions happen so, so fast. Um, and that has benefits, but it has the drawbacks, of course. Okay. Okay, we can definitely get into that. Yes. more as as we go through the show i think yeah. one of the one of the starting points though before we get into the depths of how the brain works because i know we're going to have a nosebleed <laughs> <laughs> i think i'm not I, a doctor <laughs> I, I think we what what we wanted to do was more probe into you as the the businesswoman mm. you know how you go about starting the business mm. you know that a young black woman going yeah. in and founding a company is not something that you see every day and mm. you're an inspiration to a lot of people oh, going that. forward. So it'd be great to to understand, you know, that journey a little bit more in depth before we go into 
the neuroscience of hiring. What do and you am I right in saying that you came up with the idea initially for, for Movite from an application to Microsoft, is that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. That is where I guess the, the start of the journey. So I was doing uh, my PhD in neuroscience and then that's where I met my co-founder Vivek, who's the CTO. Yep. Uh, he was doing computer science at Oxford. And at that time, he wanted to apply for a, a, working at a tech company. And he's a huge Microsoft fan. And applying at a graduate role so is very competitive, right? And there's so many stats in the media that tells you how competitive it is to apply for roles in the moment, especially, you know, tech or STEM roles or computer science roles. So I said to him, there must be another way that you can actually show your talents apart from just sending your CV through the traditional routes, and so what we did is in about a weekend, bashed together a, 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 an app of Vivek CV. It's a bit like your CV and your wallet kind of concept, a bit like LinkedIn before LinkedIn kind of scaled. And it literally was, was Vivek CV, right, in an app format. We put it on the Microsoft Windows Store and it got rejected initially. And I guess they're just thinking... What's the point of having Vivek CV in an app store? What can you do with that? Um, but the aim of it was to try and grab their attention. We then went back to drawing board and over again, like another 24 hours, we opened it up for everyone else to, to take their, to put their CV in this app and completely forgot about it, put it to the side, didn't even notice it was on the store. Before we know it, we've got a, a notification, you're the top Windows store app. I'm like, what do you mean we're the top Windows store app? Um, we look at the stats and it had about 50,000 downloads in a few weeks. It's climbing 100 a day. And I, I called Rebecca and said, do you know this has happened? So I have no idea. What are you on about? <laughs> <laughs> and um, before you know it, we're at Microsoft's headquarters in Reading, Thames Valley, um, having a discussion around the, the app and how it works and how do we capture this information. And it was so surreal. Because um, I was still focusing on my academia, I had, there was no intention of exploring this any further. I was just trying to get Vivek a job. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, but then we started looking at the, just the space in the sector and realised just how fragmented it is. There, you've got companies on one side, you've got candidates on the other, you've got you know recruitment agencies, all these different various various of exploration. But it was just inefficient, right? From an engineering pipeline. It, it was very fragmented. And so this is when we thought, there must be something in this, right? Because people are putting their CVs and they're spending at least half an hour on this platform. There's something there. Um, and that's when we started digging deeper and realized from a, a, a kind of an employer's perspective, there are lots of challenges along the hiring process. And some of those challenges are related to inefficiencies, but some of those challenges are related to actually diversity of inclusion, creating fairness in the workplace. And that was kind of the starting point of MeVType before it is now, what it is now around trying to mitigate biases. Initially, it was trying to get Rebecca a job. So I've done that now. <laughs> Rebecca's got a job, I can say. He's now the, the, uh, the CTO and co-founder of MeVType. And now I'm on the second job of actually how do you create fairness in the workplace. So basically all you need to do then is just get your head down for a couple of days, bash out an app, and then you're you're good. Done, right? Yeah. That's it. And then Microsoft just meet you. And then Microsoft and then, then just, just meet you. I'm ready for that conversation. <laughs> that must have been such a surreal experience it going was. to Microsoft and it was pitching. Very you, like, were you nervous? What was that? I, 
it was just all a shock. It just all happened so fast. I don't think I was processing it, yeah. really. But I remember turning up at Thames Valley, and it was huge. They have four or five buildings at Thames Valley, okay. and they were like several floors high. And you just sit there looking up going, oh, wow, this is big. Um, and it was just so surreal. And they were giving us feedback on the app and how do we improve it. And I was like, I don't even know... What, what is this? Like, this was all just an app to try and get Rebecca a job. And didn't even think around, it could be a business idea. It could be an organisation, right? It could be something bigger than what we even thought. And But the whole thing, yeah, was so surreal. But it's exciting at the same time. And as an entrepreneur, I before even, you know, running me Vitae, I was a very risk-averse type of person. Never took risks. This this probably version of building the app was the biggest risk I've taken ever. <laughs> um, just purely because, I just don't know, I think maybe it's just instincts, I'm not sure. But taking risks is not something that came natural to me at all. And this was one of the biggest ones. Now, I'm just like, yep, risk taker. They jump off the cliff and build the parachute as you go along. <laughs> um, but I've learned just so much around the journey of entrepreneurship, what it is, and you know, what leadership is, right? Um, but I'm always on the journey and always learning. So so what What would you give as like guidance as to being an entrepreneur, a CEO, mm. like leadership? What are the things that you need? I, you know, if you could give like five attributes. Yeah, that's a good question. So and I, more specifically, I would add to that as mm. a woman for that side. So the first one I'd say is probably that risk element, right? It's that risk of failing is something that... I think a lot of people have, right? Um, and someone told me something that was really kind of sticks with me right now is the, the word FAIL. The acronym for it is actually first attempt in learning. So you never actually fail, you just learn. And that for me was just a light switch moment where I just thought, Do you know what? I haven't actually failed anything. If, the, if nothing works out, I've learned so much. Being entrepreneur, I've learned more in that time frame than I have in like decades to be honest and that's the first thing i'd say that that right there is something amy's going to tell her other half when she gets home because yeah. she's I've, so scared of failure yeah and i know that line is going to come out it's later so on oh. i'm literally making a mental no, note mental right note, now right because yeah, he's I've just never so, failed he just has such great ideas yeah. but then is like no i can't do it just because what happens if it doesn't work or if i don't get these likes or this yeah. or the content's not good but you just have to yeah push it yourself you out just there. have to yeah. like what's the worst that can happen yeah right that's the thing like you go down the path of what can be the worst that can happen and it's not that bad right and so actually you do learn so much by taking that risk and that's what i was saying about you know you jump off that cliff and you build the parrot you'll figure it out one way or another so i guess that's one of the first ones the second thing is that imposter syndrome everyone especially i think women have it a lot more as well that we just Never think we're good enough. And we always think there's always people better than you. There's always been people better than you, right? There always is. But if it starts to hinder the potential that you have, that's more of a risk, I think. Um, and just something that I've learned along the way is actually put that in the back of your mind, right? Do the best that you can. That's all people are asking for, right? And your best will actually be good enough most of the time. And so that's probably the, the, the second thing that I've learned along the way. That's quite easy to say, though, it is. isn't it? it Just is. put that kind of imposter syndrome in the back. How, 
how do you tackle that though? How do you, is there any like little nuggets that you can just chuck yeah. it to the back? So let me give you an example of where actually this became really useful. It's related to the next trait, which is networking. Um, when I was starting off, I was an introvert, believe it or not, right? Um, very shy, was not used to going out and networking. That whole concept was very foreign to me. Um, and when we when we started off me V-type, both Vivek and I are both introverts. I say Vivek is still an introvert to some some extent, and I've become more of a an ambivert. I'm a bit of a mixture. I realized at the very early days when we had to, you know, you go to events often, right? You have to network, you have to build advisors, build relationships, right? That's how a lot of deals get made. And I remember sitting at the back of, you know, corners of rooms going, I don't want to talk to anyone, I really don't. <laughs> or, you know, just can, get me out of here. And that was really the imposter syndrome, thinking there's some influential people in this room that know stuff better than I do, and I don't know how the hell I'm going to actually converse with these people. And so initially I would just sit there and say nothing. I'd sit there and like by the drink section, or I would just go to the toilet and just, I would avoid any form of networking. Got to the point where I realized this is going to be a big challenge and the company is not going to scale if I keep doing this. If we're both introverted and we're both not networking, this is not going to work. And so what I started doing was I started printing lots of business cards. Um, and at that time, I, I what I would do is I would make sure I take at least 20 business cards with me. And I would never leave an event until I gave out those business cards and had conversations with people. So initially, I was there until 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock going, <laughs> this, this is gonna, I'm going to be here a while. Um, and I was like, actually, I actually do want to go home. And so that starts to force you to kind of actually just talk to people. And then I just kept doing it, right? And then I would make sure that I'd next have 30, 40. And I just kept doing it. Eventually, it just became natural. And you just find ways to kind of have conversations with people. And now I've got no problem just walking up to someone, just going, hey, this is, I'm Riam, you know, and this is who I am, and this is what I do, and tell me more about yourself. So it becomes easier. But that imposter syndrome, it starts from that imposter syndrome and moves into, actually, if you kind of put that to the back of your mind and you give yourself little tasks that are little steps that once you've achieved them and you reward yourself, right, now I can finish networking events, not at midnight, I can actually leave home. And that's a a reward. Um, It really does help. I like that. Little little steps. I think when you say, right, I've got to go to this big event to start networking with loads of people. Mm. But if you just give yourself just like, I've got to speak to five people. That's all I've got to do today. That's it. And, exactly. and, and even extroverts, I think, struggle at events. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's part and parcel of my job, but yes. I hate it. It's like, awkward, forcing isn't it? conversation is so difficult. It's not a natural thing to no. do, is it? Right? No. Or just when people are in a conversation and then you're, hi, yes. <laughs> you just yeah. like, yeah. appear. The, the marketing team might go, come and talk to that person. Oh, really? No, I need it. Why? Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It's very awkward because it's not a natural thing that we to tend to do yeah like how often are you meant to network in life right yeah. um and i guess it's just part of the parcel of you know in the world of commercials and the world that we're in that that's a way to meet lots of people but what? it's not not natural why do you think women struggle with that more than men it's a good question i think it comes down to to confidence is one thing that i think that it's related to um I've got this approach now of just kind of you fake it till you make it, right? You literally <laughs> don't worry about what other people think. And I think that's the other thing is sometimes we worry what other people think yeah. a lot yeah. too much, a bit too much. And that 
just puts a barrier, right? Now, if I do this, what are they going to say? Or if I do this, what are they going to think? I'm like, what if they do, right? Is it really going to stop you? And that mindset is drilled in from a very young age, I think, right? Mm. It's And I think we need more of that in schools to be able to kind of give people more confidence, right? Because... If you have that, and I think my family were very good at at a very early age of saying you can do it, right? You just, if I wanted to be an engineer, you could do it, Rehab. The ambition was always instilled into me from a young age. And I think if we get kids that also are, you know, are at primary school, secondary school, A-levels and so on, with that kind of ethos and trained to have that ambition, to be curious, to have confidence, to know it's okay to take risks and things aren't going to work out. I think people will just actually just wait. I think women and men will actually find it more rewarding and learn more. There's there's definitely a lack of that because I remember, I mean, I have terrible brain fog, so remembering mm. back to when I was in year 10. Yeah. But I remember there was the workplace, like work experience and things oh, yeah. like that, right? Oh, yeah. But you would have like maybe a lawyer or an accountant come in or yes. you could go for a job and someone might win it or you yeah. could go and do workplace stuff. Yes. but there wasn't a succession of women coming in and promoting themselves as a business owner. Yeah. You just don't see it in no. schools you ever. So I think it starts at a young age. It, it, it definitely worse. does. I remember the first work experience I did was, it was a PR agency and all I did was like filing cabinets was my work experience. And this was a secondary school time. And I was like, I don't know if I'm, that really is my, my potential right there. <laughs> it's a worry, isn't it? I don't know. Is this really? Hey, look at you now. Maybe, uh, maybe that's where you need to begin. Yeah, that's where. I, the thing is, right? It's I needed more exposure. I didn't know what was out there and what was po- the art of possible, right? Um, I didn't even know computer science was a thing until very later on, right? Now I can see that computer science is now being taught at a younger age, but we need to see that happening more and more. I think because. If people know what's out there, I remember back in the day, there was something called Connections. I don't know, I'm probably really showing yes, my age. I remember. Do you remember Connections? Yes. So Connections was a great place for you to kind of explore your career paths. Mm-hmm. And you'd have meetings with these kind of career advisors. And, yeah. I, and I went, they gave me this test to do. And they said, okay, on this test, I want you to you know, tell me what you think your top attributes are. And they would matchmake you with these, it's like career yeah. matching. And they said, okay, architecture, engineer, computer science, um, medicine, entrepreneurship was not on that list because I just, it was not on that list. Maybe I, did, I wasn't, they didn't think I was good for it <laughs> or it just wasn't on there. But connections doesn't exist anymore. It's, there is no, I guess, chat for career paths anymore. And I think something like that would have been useful and actually still useful because you know what the art of possibilities are. Most people, when they get to A-levels or GCSE, you have to pick your subjects. So you have to pick what you want to study or do you want to go through non-university routes? Just knowing what the art of possible is. So I remember that like when I was going through GCSEs and you're yeah. like, right, you have to pick the ones that you want to do because yes. that's going to be your career for the rest of your life. What the hell? Like, I'm just 15. How the hell do I know what I want to be or what I want to study? It's crazy. Exactly it. you but don't hopefully know. because of people like you where you're bringing in new companies and new technology that work experience can be beyond I think I did mine in a primary school so it can be beyond like standing yeah mine was actually really fun I went went and was a teacher (laughs) for a few days oh lovely but hopefully as as new technology and kind of things like that come up then Mm. 
those opportunities will be offered to your kids as when they get to like work experience and mm. stuff. I was just thinking like from a business perspective, surely there's an opportunity to create a technology where you key in that data to say what that child is good at or mm. what their interests are. Yeah. And then that provides them with a potential career pathway. And then you could link that to the businesses to say, this is the potential future. Mm. You've got an apprenticeship scheme here yeah. that would match. It would, I, surely that exists. There is lots of kind of work happening in that in that space of trying to do that that matchmaking, but it's it's quite complicated, right? Because you've got personality, you've got skill sets. It's it's not a black and white answer. It's always a grey space. But right. there are organisations for sure doing some of that analysis and kind of mapping of potential and determining what abilities a candidate has, or actually at a younger age, what could they do? So, yeah, because there must be a way, like you're as a parent I'm not a parent so maybe I'm going to speak out of turn but as a parent if your child is awful at singing you're not going to kind of encourage them to be a singer you want to if they're great at being I don't know Amy that <laughs> happens a lot parents <laughs> well, are so good the darling <laughs> but that's like rewarding just for the sake of rewarding yeah, but but parents do that yeah but I feel like you should tap into the talent that they've mm. got if you see that they're an incredible artist mm. then why not put them into like art clubs and like kind of force that not force but push them in the way that they're actually good at certain things mm. I, I don't know it's hard to tell a child that their shit is singing <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's hard to tell anyone I'm the best singer in the car yeah okay <laughs> we'll have to compete on that one <laughs> so we got we've got the the risk piece we've got the imposter syndrome yeah anything else related to I'd say the networking is probably the other one that is a, a big piece um trying to think what are the other I think there are other things but they all kind of stem into these categories I'll give you some further examples when we started off at me Vitae, just the whole concept of raising investment was a new thing to me right I had no idea where to even begin with that again extend from networking but actually going hey this is my business idea and I want to raise I want a million pounds and this is what I'm going to do with it it's daunting. It's mm. very, very yeah. daunting. Um, and also, there's not that many, there's lots of stats that you'll see around the media saying how many uh, you know, female entrepreneurs have raised investment. And on top of that, how many female black entrepreneurs raise investment? And the, the odds are stacked against me, for sure, right? Um, but it's a daunting experience going in to investors going, here's my pitch deck, this is the business idea, this is where we're going, this is what we're going to do, this is our metrics. All of that is a very, it's not every day you do that. Um, mm. But I remember our first time we were raising, it took months and months and months to raise investment rounds, how to network with these investors, how to answer their questions, due diligence, negotiate terms. I I had to learn very, very quickly. And so the, the probably the other thing I'd probably say that's related to kind of traits is you're not always going to get it right the first time. But being able to be lean is a, a another approach or a trait that I think is fundamental. Because they tell you to, in the startup world, they talk about, uh, you know, the lean startup approach of being able to adapt and learn and iterate very quickly, a bit like becoming very agile. And you have to be like that when you're a startup because you have to do things very quickly and learn very quickly. You know, I had to learn about HR and learn about accounting and learn about, you know, finance and, you know, sales and investments very, very quickly. Um, and 
the only way of doing that is actually being surrounded by people who have done it before, right? And, and this is probably the next thing I'd say around kind of traits and just ability is building a relationships with people who have that expertise, that have done it before and know the growing pains that an entrepreneur in our journey would go through. And they will also tell us what the pitfalls that they've experienced before. I could write a book on all the things that I've learned from just raising investment on, and running a company. And so, you know, being able to have these relationships, these mentors, I don't think it's just in the world of startups. I think it's just in life in general, having mentors is, is an important thing because they can guide you and they can assist and actually um, help build that confidence, right? help with networking, all of those things that we worry about in a day-to-day, having those relationships. Who, who, who are some of your mentors then? Some of my mentors. Uh, so some of my mentors are, and also some of our investors, to so combine together. So there's a guy called Jeff Hughes, who uh, used to work at Microsoft, in fact, which is where all of our connections started. So I'd say he's a, a mentor and also an investor and actually sits on as a non-exec at Movitai. There's a guy called Duraj Mukherjee, who's is the co-founder of Shazam. So he's a mentor and also, I'd say, an investor, a non-exec, Emmy Vitae. Um, I would say that uh, Simon Samuel is also an investor, a mentor, a non-exec. He's our kind of HR guru, I call him. <laughs> he knows everything about HR that I could, I could possibly ask, right? All of those people. And then I'd say those are coming from a work perspective. But I also say my family are also just like my mentors, my advisors, right? They keep me sane. Really, what I'm going, what I'm pulling You've my hair. You've got a hair. lot going on. I'm I know, I've got a lot going on. What am I doing, right? Um, I mean, you have some big cheese from Microsoft. You have the owner Shazam. of Shazam. <laughs> like, yeah, you've got a lot going on. But I've got a lot going on, but I, and I've learned so much from them. And they're the most humble people you'd ever speak to. Uh, I remember when I was talking to Daraj, the first one I met him, I met him at a networking event, in fact. And he didn't say he was the co-founder of Shazam at all. He just, hi, I'm Daraj, and he gave me his business card, and I was um, I was doing a panel discussion. And after I took his business card, and I looked at LinkedIn, and I searched it up, and it says, you know, Daraj Mukherjee, speaker, um, entrepreneur, co-founder of Shazam. I was like, my jaw just dropped. <laughs> and I was like... Why did you not open with that conversation? Because uh, you know, you'd think it would be like the first the thing first that people would say. He doesn't have to. He doesn't, have to. He yeah, doesn't need true. to. So yeah. I immediately added a, a LinkedIn request, and then I um, didn't hear back anything. So I, then I emailed him and I was like, "Diraj, want to have a chat?" Again, nothing. Diraj, we need to have a chat. Um, nothing. The third time, I was like, Daraj, I'm going to ping you one more time. Let's have a meeting. And they're like, okay, okay, he gave up. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess persistence is another trait. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we just clicked instantly. Uh, he's the most humble person, really. And But having our mentors, having our advisors there has been like a godsend. It really has. Learned so much. And even when we go to our board meetings right now, every quarter, and we have discussions, they're really like a sounding board, really, to just, you know, are we making the right strategy, right moves? You know, how do we want to take things forward? Can they help in terms of, you know, what can they help with? All of those things are down to these mentors, these advisors, these non-exec, these investors, let's say. Can it be a bit overwhelming? Like, for me, I'm like, oh, my God, going into a meeting with 
those kind of people imposter are you, syndrome like, an imposter, yeah, syndrome. imposter syndrome like oh. being I mean I guess you're comfortable with it now right but initially having those people saying yeah we we actually want to invest and partner with you I'd be like oh my god that, that was literally my reaction oh my gosh I wouldn't obviously <laughs> 100% it was so I remember the first board meeting because I I've never been to a board meeting before Right? Um, it's not every day you just join board meetings. True. So our first one was ours. And I was like, and I did so much Googling. What is a typical board meeting like? <laughs> what do you do in a board meeting? What are the, you know, what do I need to send? Do you watch I... Succession as well? Have you ever seen that? No, I've heard of it, but I've. Oh, I... you need to watch that for the board meetings in there. Oh, you'd, okay. You'd enjoy those. Okay, I'll compare See. it to what ours are like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If, if only you had ChatGBT, ChatGBT would be able to tell you. I, I know, right? I didn't have ChatGBT because this was what? Our first board meeting was about 2018 or so. No chat GBT, nothing, which is Google search <laughs> and just talking to other people and other entrepreneurs. I was like, and I know they couldn't send me their board meeting slides because it's confidential. I was like, what do you include, right? What are, what are the meeting minutes? What are those things? <laughs> and now I know. But yeah, the first time was nerve wracking. And I, after the first board meeting, I, I reached out to all our investors. Like, this was our first one. Give me as much feedback as you possibly can. Have we done it right? What have I missed? What do we need to include? Was it long enough, the sessions? All of those things. And again, that lean approach, right? We're always iterating, improving. The first board meeting I made was a two-pager document. Now it's a PowerPoint presentation. Um, so yeah, I've, I've always learnt. And I, think, I think you set your own rules. I, I you saw do, like yeah. Elon Musk in an interview and he said that if you're in a meeting mm. in his company... I think it's Tesla or maybe it's Twitter. I don't know. But if you're in a meeting and you're not getting anything out of it, you're allowed to just walk out mid-meeting. Oh, we and need that's to just have heard that rule. Imagine how many people would walk out. Not Everyone. on the podcast, obviously. <laughs> I'm gone. I'll see you soon. <laughs> Damn it. We had half an hour this week. Imagine if companies introduced that rule. Well, I think that you would focus very... on the value that you're bringing yeah. to the meeting, wouldn't you? Sometimes you do sit in meetings and you think, am I really necessary there? Like You end up doing things in the background. It's nice yeah. when now you work from home, right, mm. or remote working, yeah. where you just put yourself off mute, you take your camera off and you listen in the background yeah. and you do other things. But before then, you, it's a bit awkward just walking out. It just, yeah. yeah, it's strange. I mean, you might do that. I sit and listen to every call, always, you know, full attention. Oh, I do that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. <laughs> I'm listening. Now I know when the camera's off that you're, what you're actually up to. Oh, yeah. Anyway, moving swiftly on because you're <laughs> exploiting us. Should, should, should we talk about Mivitai? Yeah. In more detail. So it was like a fluky kind of just storage facility initially that you wanted to get Vivek a job yeah it's not that now it's not something far greater with a lot more depth yes let's just go into the work that you're currently doing mm. and maybe probe in and around some of that bias and what you can teach us about how the brain works that'd be be pretty good is it algorithmic bias? Is Ooh, that the right word? That or, is an right word, yeah. Or augmented intelligence. Or augmented. All well, these I words. IA. 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 Groundbreaking. IA, yeah. <laughs> oh, you've done your research. Yeah, buddy, let's go. <laughs> Although we do have a question. Augmented IA, but you ref or it's a referred to as IA. IA. So, yeah, augmented intelligence versus artificial intelligence. A lot of the things, I guess, in the media is 
you know, man versus machine, right? It's always sounds like it's in Terminator. It's going to take over the world yep. and dominate. It's always got that narrative to it. But in fact, artificial intelligence can actually it's not got to that stage where it's doing that yet, right? It's still in its infancy, right? And there's so much more we need to learn and do. And artificial intelligence isn't about this man versus machine. It's literally a com- comparison. What can we do? with technology to kind of help unlock and save us time and help us be more efficient. And so that's more of the concept of augmented intelligence. It's augmenting us to be better uh, in what we're doing. Uh, And that's kind of the the difference. And so for us, when we're talking to a lot of HR professionals, we're saying, you know, we're not trying to replace jobs. We're not trying to replace people. We're just trying to help optimise and help you be better at what you do. And you do the things you like to do right? Um, Everyone's got strengths and weaknesses. Um, And so augmented intelligence is all about actually helping optimize us. And it's actually the man plus machine. So empowering people through tech. Pretty much. You've you've summed it up perfectly there. Thank you. (laughs) Done. We can go home. (laughs) Yes, you've done a perfect job there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Exactly that. So moving that swiftly to Mavitae and how you're supporting humans in the hiring process, you can't yes. remove bias, yes. but you can mitigate it and you yes. can help alleviate some of the shortcuts that the brain takes to make decisions, specifically recruiters, about yes. candidates. How does Movitai do that? Absolutely. So I guess maybe if I touch upon, I guess, biases first, and you're spot on there, that you can never remove biases from the human brain. There's over 150 types biases that exist right confirmation bias halo effect bias there's lots of articles out there that discuss all these different types and everyone has different versions of these biases it's based on our upbringing our environment our genetics all of these things are a factor now and i said before that it helps us make decisions now in the world of recruitment when we're first presented with a resume or a cover letter we the way cv is laid out You've got the name on the top, typically, and big, bold writing. You've yep. got an address below. You might have an objective summary, and then it's you know, experience, education, hobbies, references, and all of those, and social media links and stuff like that. Now, when you... And there's lots of stats that says, you know, you spend about six seconds looking at a CV, right? Um, the average is everything between, like, six to ten seconds. And what we've done is we've done lots of research with academics uh, around and what we've asked employees to do is um, put these kind of uh, headsets on that measure your neural activity in like a millisecond time frame, okay. which is how biases happen. Uh, and then also we track their eye movement to see where their eyes were licking at the same time. And what we discovered, <laughs> as you would, right? It's, yeah, so as you would. it's really cool. There's like, you can see like on the CV, it's like all colours where they focus their most amount of time, right? Yes, yeah. exactly that. And they spend most of the time looking at someone's name. Right, or, and they spend some time looking at their their company name, their job titles, their hobbies and interests. Also looking at, um, I guess sometimes address as well. But when was the last time a name determined someone's talent? Why should that be the first thing that we're looking at to determine if someone's got an ability to do a job? It's just the way these resumes are laid out. And so this is where the cons- what you're trying to do is recalibrate our eyes to focus on more of the skills, the competencies, the potential a candidate has. And that's the kind of concept around blind recruiting or anonymized recruiting, or some people call it neutral 
recruiting, different terminologies and banded around. And that means redacting this personal identifiable information that could lead to biases, right? Such as someone's name or, you know, the hobbies and interests that someone's uh, has, right? Um, Or the university someone's gone to. Right. It's and these different parameters are up to the the company to decide what they'd like to redact. And some organizations have policies now in place. Right. Such as name blind policies. Uh, And it's what we've seen is actually in our technology is a machine that actually does that anonymization for you. And it runs inside HR systems or application tracking systems. And it does it very, very quickly. It does about 600 documents in six seconds. And believe it or not, people used to do it manually. Right. Actually, take out a CV, like blank it out, and then send it to the hiring manager to yep. read. Yeah. And I'm just thinking that is very efficient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so now it's it's optimized to be able to do it quickly, and that's that augmented intelligence piece, right? Um, and we've seen actually it's, it's shifted the dial considerably. So we've seen an increase in diversity and inclusion right, uh, in, by different protected characteristics, in some cases by 30% and in some up to 50%. So more diverse candidates are making it through to later stages of the hiring process and subsequently being hired just by doing this, right? And there's lots of, and what I'm going to say here just to be transparent is there's no silver bullet to try and to tackle diverse inclusion, right? I'm not here to say that you just have to do blind recruiting or anonymized recruiting. You have to do lots of different things. Yeah. Right? We say it all the time. Technology is great, but it's not the answer. Like it's not going to solve everything within recruitment. Exactly. It's people, processes, things behind the scenes you that need, yeah. aid and support with the technology. Absolutely. You need a whole host of different techniques because biases are at, diff- at different points across the process, right? You've got it all the way from the moment you write a job description all the way through to, to interview or offer stage. And so what you need is you need different processes, policies, technology approaches at different points of the hiring process to tackle biases at those those points. And, and that's what's really important, that organisations need to put diversity and inclusion strategies in place to kind of try and tackle that. But it has to be a foundational piece. It can't just be an afterthought mm. that, oh, now we need to do blind recruiting because we have to do it. No, you need to do it because it should be part of your strategy and because you've identified there's a problem there that you would like to tackle, really. And do you see the whole kind of redaction of CVs a forever thing for companies? Or is it something that you think if they're just starting out, they're just building out like their whole mm. DNI strategy, it can mm. then help? Or is it something that you kind of should include throughout for forever for them? Is it? I think it depends on the organisation. So the first thing we say organisations to do before you look, in a, look at your strategy is look at your data. What does your data show? Uh, look at your, your ATS and look at your, um, there's something called the self-identification questions or the EO1 forms in the US they call them, where you can track um, diversity across your hiring pipeline mm-hmm. based on different protected characteristics. That's the first activity I would encourage any organisation to do. Right. Or you can just get me Vitae. That's the other thing. <laughs> so I'll plug that in. Um, but yeah, but tracking that diversity data will tell you where the challenges lie. Right. So if you realize that actually there's a drop off in diversity data at your screening process, then maybe anonymized recruiting is the right approach for you. Right. And, that, and until you until that's more balanced out, if you realize that it's actually at the interview stage, then you need to tackle that. So your data needs to inform your strategy 
really. Um, and so some for some organisations, anonymised recruiting will be their strategy for the entire time because that's where the challenges are. Um, or in some organisations, it's part of their policies. So in um, public sector, uh, anonymised recruiting is now one of the policies in place. Yep. So that's not going to change anytime yeah. soon. So they have to do it. Uh, and so it really does depend on like private sector versus public sector, but the strategy the organisation has. I think so many companies are so far behind where they need to be from a data standpoint because mm-hmm. nobody's, yeah. well, I say nobody, yeah. not many clients that we're talking to have the capability to look at where they're losing diverse candidates. Like yes. at what stage are you losing them? Yep. And I, I think people maybe put anonymization of CV as maybe a, a way of resolving it. Whereas yep. in fact, once all that data comes back mm. on the radar and you're losing yep. them at interview, but you can't see it being lost yes. at interview. Yep. You, you're just never going to resolve your your biases it's very hard it's very hard and i think the uh, the the story i get told a lot of the times is we have these self-identification forms or the eo1 forms that we get candidates to fill in but it's a voluntary form right and so they a lot of people say that their uh, completion rates aren't very high and so they can't their data is very sparse really and therefore they can't do a full analysis on what they where the gaps are really and the first thing I'd say to that is you need to try and find ways of trying to tackle that. How do you increase that the response rates? And I've seen different approaches being made. And one of the recommendations are is actually telling candidates, what are you doing with that data? Right. What is it going to be used for? What is the process? Is it there to help build a diverse and inclusion strategy? Is it there to try and, um, you know, track progress? Because... A lot of, I guess, misconceptions people have is, do they can can a hiring manager see that data? Do they see the answers to the questions? And the answer is no, because it's an aggregated data set. So they can't use it for any other purpose. But if you can increase the response rates of those self-identification questions, then actually you can then start doing things with that data and it's no longer sparse, really. And do you think the world of AI is going to come in in terms of like the whole bias, either making it worse or better? How do you, where do you sit with the whole AI? I know Dave loves a conversation about ChatGBT, so we have oh, to. Gonna bring have it in. This, are we going to have no, the ChatGBT conversation? Amy keeps saying this about about me to people, and it, it is there a bias? Well, it, well, yeah, I am biased against ChatGPT. Again, I'll say the same thing that I said last time she raised this. I don't have a problem with ChatGPT. Okay. I have a problem with some people that might assume it's going to revolutionize them as opposed to, you know, just, I get the whole technology can empower you. Yes. But for me, so many people are using ChatGPT as doing their work for them. Like, look at this LinkedIn post I've done. And it's ChatGPT. It's like, come on, like give give the technology some ideas to play with yep. and then make it your own after that. And for me, I see people taking shortcuts and it, it just infuriates me because I like creative minds and I feel like something like that could take away from the creativity in the human mind. So that's kind of where I'm at, but I'm not a neuroscientist. So wow, well, might we be one day. I might be, I won't be. But wasn't there, was it Amazon that where they had with their recruitment platform yes. they had a whole big problem around the bias because of the yep. data that, that the ai was reading in mm. that 
Amazon is predominantly, a, well, at the time was a male workforce. So then yes. in their recruitment AI, yep. it was favoritizing men because it was reading the data that actually we've got lots of men, so we want more men. So they had a whole, <laughs> they had a whole problem around that. So is, is the whole data around, in, that we're feeding in AI going to be a problem? Or again, is it just more of like an aid in the process? No, that's a good point, actually. And that's when you were saying that algorithmic bias piece. And one of the biggest, I guess, threats that we're going to have is the algorithmic bias coming down in the future, right? Because, you know, we make decisions, but AI is also making decisions based on the data we feed it, right? Uh, and also the models that we build. And a lot of the times it's a black box, right? You put in some data, it does something in the middle in that black box and you get an answer. How did it get to that answer is very tricky, right? Um, most people, didn't, and when you have the concept of machine learning, how is it learning these things? And actually, what is the, the implication that's going to have, right? And if and, and that example of, of the Amazon scenario was, I'd say, an example of algorithmic bias, right? Because the, the machine was sitting there picking men over women. They had to shut it down, I believe, in 2018. Now... Algorithmic bias is, is literally a system, systematic error, is what it is. It's an error in the machines. Um, and you'll never be able to remove algorithmic biases from machines, right? It's the same way you can never remove it from people, right? The only way you can ever remove biases never have people is the, is the short answer. There's a lot more redundancies coming. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just thinking, yeah, yeah. but if you... But, if you feed it with good data what then, is good data but then literally in my head I was like but what is good data because to exactly. me versus what Dave thinks is good data could mm, be very different very different exactly I think factual data data yeah, but that's what's factual to who I, I think if you were looking at well as an example in my mind the way I would see it as being cleaner is if you were looking at the tenure of somebody how they've performed over a set period of time and what mm. they've achieved in relation to their goal. So if it's a salesperson, they hit their target three years in a row, they were always on time and they did well in every performance review. Mm. That to me, in my mind, is a good hire irrespective of their background. Yeah. And so the data should be derived based on the sales success of 20 individuals. And then you look at the other, the other things affiliated to that data, in my mind. Like, that's how I would... That's just one example. Point taken. There is a, something that's really interesting. So a lot of organizations, so I believe it's IBM, uh, Microsoft also, they're doing, they're investing a lot of money into the world of algorithmic biases to try and tackle it, right? Because it's going to be a very important thing. But also there's a lot of, I guess, AI ethics that mm. starts to creep into this conversation, right? If, you know, at the moment, machines can't make, decisions for us right where even in recruiting you can have machines to aid but the the buck still lies with the person yeah. as opposed to the machine and some of the ways that organizations are trying try to tackle this is they're putting in audits in place so ai audits in essence um the ico are, are looking into that um i guess there's also the cdi as well that are also looking into it and there are lots of factors that lead to the effectiveness of an AI being built to try and mitigate algorithmic biases. So transparency, right? How does the machine come to a decision? It can't be just a black box anymore, right? Um, the data itself, right? The 
is it good data, bad data, or is it representative data? Because again, you don't want it to be skewed for, and there was examples of this where um, for facial recognition um, many, many years ago, where a machine couldn't pick out um, different people of different skin complexions, right? Because the, da- the data that it was fed wasn't representative. Uh, oh, wow. And so, again, that's another area of algorithmic mm. biases. So data representation becomes very important. The models that are being built, how are they being built? Who are they being built by, right? Are they of a diverse team? So they don't all have the same mindsets and you need to have a diverse team to build kind of AI modules, etc. And so governance is another. So there's lots of factors that are now starting to take into place that determine, you know, is this built in a way that is trying to tackle algorithmic biases? Then it's in essence a framework or a governance around it. Uh, New York are putting in laws in place around this topic, yeah. right? Um, you might have seen on the BBC some also some articles or, and, and media around AI grading systems as well. So all of these are starting to take into place and I'm expecting that we're going to see more of them as we, as we continue because we're becoming more and more dependent on AI or augmented intelligence and we want to make sure that it's regulated and the ethics of it is if we capture it early... We're trying to actually prevent something that can can cascade in the future. It's, it's quite scary, like just the whole the whole piece about how it could have bias in itself is is a bit freaky. I don't like it. Yeah, I was watching a I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago, and they were talking about how AI is actually incredible. It's, it is. It's yeah. a really really like amazing piece of like tech or whatever. Yeah. But it's the people that use it that are just going to ruin it, and just that—that's the pe- that's the scary thing. It's the people that put the data in, and the people how they use it is then going to almost essentially ruin. Well, look at it in recruiting. You know, we have all of these pieces of tech, but you know, are they ever used properly? Yeah. So I mean, we we have like cards down feedback. Mm. So I don't see what somebody else has said about a particular candidate. Mm. You can anonymize the CV through Mavitai. Yeah. But then when a hire is made, mm-hmm. let's just say I didn't maybe agree with the hire. Yep. I don't get to see that breakdown of why the hire was made. And and I think that kind of data is is massively missing in our mm. industry right mm. now. Like you, you see, oh, you know, the hiring manager made, made that hire because what, their preference? Mm-hmm. But what did the other people say? And if they didn't agree, is there a discussion about it? How, yep. How do we use technology to make sure that that isn't happening because somebody in a position of power does have bias yes. and they do have the power to make the decision and therefore all the tech that's gone before Just, is irrelevant yeah. because they've not listened to it. I agreed. And I think also the other problem is, I think we use the word fit, right, and a lot, right? The mm. person doesn't fit or they're not a good fit or there's no cultural fit. But again... When people say that, what does that what does that mean, right? It's a way to you can easily. Did I say that? Did I say fit? No, you didn't. I I don't think you did. You're you're you're, you're okay. Let's redact that. (laughs) Uh, You're using me for that. Yeah, please. please. (laughs) Um, It'd break if it had to use me. (laughs) um, But yeah, the the word so those kind of things becomes very tricky, right? Because it's not quantifiable, and how do you measure it? Right. What does good talent look like? Right. And how do you define it? What does good look like in an organization? And how do you define it? Those are all important factors that we need to take into account. So we're not actually it's not a way to screen people out. And I think the way 
traditionally the recruitment process is built is that it's a way to screen people out as as screen people in right it's you're cutting your numbers right you're starting with thousands to one but actually that kind of weeding of people out means you miss a lot of potential right people who have so much talent right that have no they they kind of got barriers to entry and they're being missed right and i'll give you an example let's take into account neurodiversity right neurodiverse candidates right or or candidates who don't perform well on psychometric tests for example i would fail a psychometric test constantly i would i'm not very good at them i mean <laughs> overthinking no 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 i would Let's do one. <laughs> yeah, right, that um, could be our next thing. Is do we could all do a psychometric test for the next podcast? So should. That's not. It's a good thing I'm not part of that process. <laughs> no, no, that's what you signed up for. Oh, yeah. oh, oh gosh, oh gosh. Um, but yeah, so it's a way to screen people out, right? But there's some people that are really good who need to get a, just get a chance, right? They need an opportunity to actually shine. Or they need the hiring process slightly to be adapted to account for their like differences really. Um, and once they're green, then they've they've got the the kind of support, right, and the motivation and empowerment, they could really shine, really. So yeah. Okay. Speaking of shining, so if you could have a magic wand for your oh, kind here of... comes the question. <laughs> It's a good. Question. This is your thing now, it's isn't it? Thing. If it's we can have a magic wand, go on. You go got on, ask the GBT. Yeah. No, you, oh, yeah. No, <laughs> you know the question coming, don't you? Like, I don't yeah. actually. She doesn't. I don't. Okay, I don't. Go on. So if you could have a magic wand, you okay. could only kind of make a wish once. What would you have in? What would you create in the technology space, or how would you kind of expand in, in on Mavitai what you've got to help the recruitment world? That's such a good question. I would never have predicted that question. No. I, See. Right. You shouldn't have bias that other people <laughs> are going to not like the question. Oh. Okay. You have one thing that you could either change, create, or do within the uh, within the recruitment world. And an adaptation to that could be, or if you think a particular area is really missing mm. piece of technology right now. If you think it's really good, maybe don't say it on the podcast because we might have a, a good idea we can collaborate on. Yeah, and if you need more time, we can do it on our conclusion. <laughs> no, I think I've got an answer. I think I've got an answer. It's not a tech, but I think it's a it's a thing that I think would be good to see in the world of recruitment, which is in the, the I guess we're talking about data and we're talking about creating fairness in the workplace and, right, there is, we talked about tracking that information, but the way we track that information at the moment is relate, relate, relying on things like self-identification questions, etc. And we, you know, organisations report to their boards around how well their organisations are doing. But what would be great is to have a way where we can, I guess, audit, behold organisations accountable to diversity and inclusion around fairness in the workplace, right? A way to be able to measure it and quantify it so that we all know how well we're doing and we're at, and that's transparent, right? Mm. That's a way that we can actually collectively think about this. We all agree on it. I don't know, this is probably perfect world scenario, but it's a way that will create accountability, responsibility, but it's a way to actually make sure that we are all moving towards a fairer workplace, really. You could call it like a diversity level agreement, something along those lines. It could to be keep like something that plugs into like your email so you can see like the tones and the words that you're using, mm. like follow you throughout your whole day. 
and then see how you are kind of tracking on that scale. Precisely. That would be cool. Okay. okay. You're hired. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> we might redact that as well. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's that been like an hour of like interesting conversation. Oh, time is flying. I, I didn't realise it was an hour. Yeah, we've, wow. we've done the hour. So, um, you know, if, if you've made it to the end of this podcast, then it's obviously been pretty special. But for me, like my mind's a little bit blown. Like definitely Honestly, need to yeah. sit down. I know I'm sat down, but I need to continue sitting. <laughs> I might need to do, do, do that too, you know. <laughs> you might need a custard cream oh, or do you know a what? piece of shortbread. I know, you've got shortbread and custard cream, so I'm going to take both of those. I'm going to eat, scoff them down. Take them. Take them. <laughs> it's fine. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's, oh. it's been a pleasure. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.